Amen. If you got a Bible, we'll be in Romans chapter 2 tonight. We'll begin in verse number 11 and read down through verse 16 to uh, set the tone for our conversation tonight. Um, we uh, begin chapter 2 last week. We'll uh, kind of catch up on what uh, where we left off and we'll finish out chapter 2 this evening. Um, this is a very, very, I think, important conversation to have around God's Word. It's something that is so relevant to us where we're at tonight and who we are as a people and whether you are uh, a longtime church member, whether you're on the out on the periphery of church, but you believe in Jesus, I believe there's something for all of us tonight. So uh, would God bless the reading of his word and, and bless the hearing more importantly. Romans chapter two, verse number 11, for there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves." who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my or according to the gospel. Got a lot of really good th stuff I think God's going to bring out of that passage and, and the passages that precede this text. Uh, but I want to start off by... Uh, make it by making reference to a book that I read a long time ago, a book that I encourage every Christian to read. If you don't have a copy, I've got a couple of copies. I will be glad to loan you. Uh, you, uh, you would breeze through it if you read your Bible on a regular basis. I think it's okay to read other things that it strengthen that scriptural uh, understanding. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a lot of incredible books. He also wrote some great, not great fictional books, Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever watched or uh, those movies or seen, read the books, more importantly. Um, he wrote a lot of powerful things inspired by the Word of God, but perhaps his greatest piece and his magnum opus, his crowning achievement in literature is a book called Mere Christianity, where C.S. Lewis uh, really uh, gives his um, explanation for uh, why all of us um, need Christ and why all of us are drawn to Christ and why the gospel, why, how the gospel appeals to everyone, uh, and, and he really gets to the heart of what Christianity is all about, and it's an incredible book. You should read it. Again, I've got a copy if you want to borrow it. Uh, I've got his whole set of works if you want to read all of them if you're really into it. But nonetheless, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in the opening chapter of Mere Christianity that there is within all of us, there is within all of us this curious idea that we ought to behave a certain way. That there is within all of us this ought to, this sense of I should or I better or there is a standard that I'm missing that I need to live up to. There is within all of us an ought to. There is in every one of us, no matter what our background is, what our culture is, where our place and time is, there is within everybody that has ever lived on this planet, ancient times or current times, there is this ought to, this sense of I should do this in a better way or I should do this in you know some way at all there is in all of us this understanding that there is a standard we often fall short of it but there is a standard that we often attribute to God or we attribute to some other set of beliefs or some other set of ideas but everybody agrees whether they speak the same language or not or are part of the same culture or not worship the same God or not every human being agrees there is an ought to 
There is in all of us this idea that we ought to behave a certain way. However, and this is the amazing observation that Lewis makes, however, we do not in fact behave in that way. Now, have you ever had the words come out of your mouth? I should, but you don't. I should be doing that, but you just never do. And you feel bad about it from time to time, but you just never really have the, I don't know if it's the unction or the desire or the wherewithal, and maybe you just don't really ever take it that serious that you know there's an all to in you, but you just don't ever do anything about it. Now, it's quite the paradox, this sense of alt, coupled with the unlikelihood or the inability to act. That every one of us has that awareness. We all are aware that there is an alt to in us, but all of us have this inability to actually do what we think we should do. Or maybe it's not an inability all the time, but it's just this unlikelihood that we're actually going to go from point A to point B. And I think all of us have been at that place. We ought to do it, but we don't. Now, let me make an educated guess about how we intersect with this idea, if I may. Because isn't it true that while we are aware of this ought to within us, we are much more vocal about it with regards to others? Now, this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable, right? But that's what church is about sometimes right now. It's about getting relief. But sometimes to get relief, you've got to get in that place of discomfort. We are all aware that there's an all-to within us, but we are much more vocal about it with regard to others. As in, we are very quick to articulate how someone else ought to be behaving, saying that there is no excuse. Have you ever found yourself looking at somebody or some group of people and you say to them, you ought to, or you, you, maybe you're not talking to them personally, but you're talking to them you know, in general or you're talking about them. They ought to do this. There is no reason for them not to. But at the same time, and this is the curious paradox of humanity, at the same time that we are quick to say they ought to and there's no reason they shouldn't, at the same time we are just as likely to excuse ourselves from our ought to because we feel like it's just not within reach of us. Isn't it true? That you will look at someone else and say, well, you ought to, and I don't know why you don't, but when you look in the mirror, that ought to is there, but there's also an excuse not far behind it. Deep down, the ought to is as strong as strong within us as it is toward others, but more often than not, and not, this isn't every time, and if you're raised in church, you may be more inclined to not do this. You may actually be inclined to do this more than you should. We'll talk about that. But more often than not, we deny the all too within ourselves, but we enforce it towards others. Again, I'm not trying to pry or not trying to you know, judge you. I'm just trying to make us aware of this. We deny the ought to within us. If someone says to you, you ought to, we say, yeah, I know I should, but you just don't understand why I can't. You say that to the doctor every time that he says or she says you should be healthier. Right? And I'm not judging you. I've been there too. I've been told what I shouldn't eat and what I should eat, and I don't eat what I should, and I do eat what I shouldn't. I ought to do better, but I don't. And when I am told I should, I give a good excuse as to why I can't. But when somebody else is told that they should, I am there to say, oh, yes, you should. And here's the reasons you should. And let nobody make you feel like you are excused from that requirement. Maybe you feel like that when I'm preaching, right? 
I'm the one that says you ought to, and I give you the reasons why you should, and maybe you're thinking, well, it's easy for you to say. But we are good at doing that ourselves, aren't we? We often deny it within ourselves, but we excuse it or we enforce it with others. Now, I got to ask you, why do we do this? Maybe the better question to see if we can all admit that this is true is that we all do this, don't we? And come on, this alt is undeniable and it's inescapable. As in, you, you know it's there and it never goes away, does it? It is inescapable. However, our nature to deny this alt, to deflect this alt, and defer it to somebody else is obvious. And really, if we're being honest, it's inexcusable. Now, you know what this paradox is called? <laughs> when we know we should, but we don't, but we tell others they should and they don't have an excuse? You know what that little paradox is called? And it hurts to say this. Hypocrisy, right? Hypocrisy. That's why Jesus was often quick to call people that were like this hypocrites, which is a Greek word that means actor, literally, one who plays the part, who says I am, but I don't, and then makes others feel like they should feel worse because they don't. Now, we are all hypocritical on so many levels. And again, that's just being human. And this isn't to be uh, extremely judgmental. It's just being honest with us about who we are and what we do. Think about the rules. Think about the rules that you have at home. And maybe you realize this when you got older, that when you were younger, your parents had rules about their house. And they made out like the rules were, were the gold standard that everybody was held accountable to those rules, even themselves. But you learned as you got older, they did not keep their own rules. But it was their house, of course. They could break their own rules. But when they gave you the law, it seemed as if that no one could break it. And if anyone broke it, it was the worst thing that ever could happen. It's okay for you and your house to break your rules, but it's not okay for others to break those rules. And when others break those rules, it's the end of the world. But when you break those rules, it's just life. And again, that's fine. It's your house. Who cares? But isn't that part of this nature within us? You know, the reason you have those rules is because it, has to, it should be done, right? But we also break those rules. Think about the rules on the road. Maybe you're somebody that gets really annoyed and really, you know, uh, you know pumped up or, you know, really uh, aggravated when somebody drives with distracted habits, but it's okay when you do it, isn't it? When you're in the passenger seat and someone is doing some things that are erratic, it's the worst thing in the world, but when you're in the driver's seat, you don't pay attention to what you're doing that may be as erratic. And again, that's just nature, isn't it? We, uh, we observe it in others, but we deny it in ourselves. Think about how we understand the laws of our land. Think about how we understand the tax code. Everyone should pay their taxes, shouldn't they? But we spend a whole month trying to find how we can pay as little as we have to. And again, that's fine. That's the system. You should not pay as much as you, you know, more than you have to. I wouldn't blame anyone, but we get very upset when somebody else doesn't pay theirs. And I, and I could go on all night and it would make us feel worse, but we could pry and pick and, you know, all of us, I think, get the picture at this point, don't we? But when it comes to religion, the conversation just, is just getting started. When it comes to religion, this is really on display in a lot of slimy ways. When somebody else sins, we demand justice, don't we? 
And again, when someone sins, they should be a consequence for that sin, especially when it's grievous and when it's, and when it's egregious, it's awful. People should pay the consequences and people should be, uh, you know, rescued if they were the one that were sinned against. They should be, you know, done, receive justice. When somebody else sins, we demand justice, but what happens when you sin? We plead for mercy. And of course you do. And if it's available, why wouldn't you? But if it's available for somebody who else who sinned, we're not as quick to give it to them, are we? Because they ought to have not done that. And we ought to have not done that as well, but, you know, we have a reason, and they didn't. Now, we are really good at telling others what they should be doing, while we are very good at explaining why we have not yet done what we should do. And here's the grimy, deceptive truth about religion and why the Bible is so anti-religion and why I preach hard against it so much. And the Bible is so true towards those that fall into the clutches of religion. Religion is hollow, as in it looks like it's this big infrastructure that has it all figured out, but inside it's empty. Religion is very self-aware, as in religion knows that it's empty, but it deceives people that comes into its walls. Religion is like uh, when I was little, um, I loved going to Disney World and I still like Disney, but when I would go to Disney World, I would think I can't wait to go into the castle because surely it's going to be the most marvelous thing you could ever enter into because it's just this beautiful castle that has all these rooms. And I would imagine the dungeon and imagine the dining hall and imagine all the different rooms and you literally get to the castle and it's just a hallway. They don't, I mean, there's people that get to go to the upper floors, but you don't get to go to the upper floors unless you pay hundreds of dollars to sit in the dining hall, but that's not really getting a tour of the castle. I would, so, I would dream about going into this beautiful, awesome building that I saw in movies, but you would walk into it, and it was literally just a hallway you'd walk through. I was like, What's, you know, what is that all about? The main center attraction of the park, and it's empty. It's hollow. It's just a husk. It looks big, but it actually isn't much to it. Religion is very self-aware. Religion knows that there is nothing but sin within every heart. Religion knows that our hearts are sinful. And religion knows that it cannot help our hearts. Religion knows that it's impossible to justify our hearts on our own merit. And this is what I call the smokescreen of religion. Religion uses its alt to because religion is big about the ought to's, isn't it? Religion says people ought to do this and do that or not do that or that. Religion uses the ought to to condemn as many people as possible. But those that follow it, those that adhere to it, those that belong to it, religion gives them an out. Oh, well, because you do this and because you say that and recite this and go through these rituals, you're fine. But those people, they're not. Religion emphasizes the ought to, but it excuses those that are in its own gatherings. And everyone that's in the circle falls for it because, well, they know the right stuff. They believe the right stuff. They're not like those out there doing the heinous stuff. We're in the smokescreen. We don't realize it. Do they claim perfection? Of course not, but at least, at least, at least they're not like them. Religion says, well, yeah, we're not perfect, but we're not as bad as those people. So that makes us okay for our mistakes. I mean, just read the scriptures. Don't you see how wrong they are when you say to religion, what about the scriptures that condemn you? Well, you've got to understand we're excused, but they're not. And there's never really a good excuse. We just sort of wiggle our way out of it. And usually we're surrounded by like-minded people. We shut off the hypocrisy and the duplicity and we just 
you know, move forward. And all the while, we are actually adding another load of dirt on our own graves in terms of our own condemnation against ourselves. So this is, and you wonder what's the long introduction for, this is the case that Paul is making against the Jews in the opening chapters of Romans. Now, Paul was a Jew and was formerly stuck in the smokescreen. He was blinded by the smokescreen. Paul was formerly one who boasted of the alt that they should do and excused himself of the alt that he could not do. Paul was a former you know, part, Jewish religious man having been saved out of it, the first couple chapters of Romans, Paul is targeting the Jewish religious readers and trying to rescue them from the smokescreen of religion, trying to expose their own hypocrisy to them. Paul believed that the Jews were less inclined to open up and turn to Jesus because the law was meant to bring them to Jesus, but because they had become so caught up in religion, they used the law to condemn others, and they rather or they rarely admitted their own guilt, and therefore they never thought they needed a Savior. As a result, they came under the false pretenses that they were justified by the appearance of godliness without regard to the actual possession and practice of it. So you see the idea there. They were big on what you ought to do and how they didn't do it that way, but they did not deal with their own ought to and made a lot of excuses as to why they did not do as they ought to do. So in the early parts of Romans, Paul is trying to convince the Jews that they've rested in the wrong thing for salvation, while at the same time, he's trying to de-escalate the tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles. Why, maybe you've never wondered this, why does Paul go out of his way to talk about the Jews and the Gentiles being recipients of the same salvation? He says Jew and Gentile. He's not trying to divide them, but he's trying to admit or bring attention to both of them and make both parties realize they get saved the same way. He brings both of them, or he mentions both of them, to make both of them realize that if I'm going to get saved, it's going to be the same way they are going to get saved. So he mentions Jew and Gentile because he wants the Jews to know if you're getting in, they can get in too. And he wants the Gentiles to know if you're getting in, they get in too. That there's no separation in terms of how God accepts or who God allows in. All are invited to come the same way. But Paul is making very clear that we know the way. Because the Jews had gotten it wrong. Now, early in the parts of Romans, he's trying to convince the Jews they had rested in the wrong place. But even when there were some Jews that put their faith in Jesus, they still had this inflated reverence for the law and traditions. They could not let go of their religion. And in fact, they never got saved as a result of it because they couldn't let go of what they felt more justified by. They were very hesitant to embrace the Gentiles and accept that Gentiles could be saved as well because the Gentiles did not have their history. The Gentiles did not have their experience. The Gentiles had never even read the Old Testament. How could they get saved? They did not know what they knew. So what we've seen Paul do so far in Romans is, is pick apart the Jewish or what I'll call the religious hypocrisy, dismantling their false hope of salvation in effort in hopes to clarifying the one and only true way to be saved. It may be hard for us to understand, but the Jews and the Gentiles were divided in a substantial and palpable way. They hated each other. Now, the Jews uh, had their, believed the Gentiles were unclean and, and, and could not be saved, and the Gentiles didn't like the Jews because they made them feel so bad about themselves all the time, and they didn't even realize why or think that there was reason for it. 
Now, for instance, Peter, the apostle Peter, Peter had been a Jesus follower and a leader of the church for over a decade, and he had never even been in the same room of a Gentile until God told him to go to Cornelius. And when he got to Cornelius' house, Peter confessed, I've never been in a Gentile's house before this day. I mean, how can you go you therefore and make disciples of all nations if you're not even willing to go in the same room as somebody? Well, Peter had his reasons, and they were good reasons, <laughs> but they weren't good enough. Now, that was the, one of the holdovers from the Jewish superiority complex, and to them it made sense. The Gentiles did not have what, they, what the Jews have. They didn't know what the Jews know, haven't seen what the Jews have seen. So, of course, the Jews thought they were closer to God. Of course, the Gentiles were farther from God than they were. And over time, the Jews did this pretty nefarious thing. They glazed over the shortcomings because of their proximity to the story of God. Well, the Jews, if you would get Peter in a corner, Peter, are you perfect? Of course I'm not perfect, but I'm closer to God than they are. They glazed over their shortcomings because of their proximity to the story of God while they highlighted the Gentiles' shortcomings because of their distance. Well, of course their sin is worse than ours because they always have been far from God and they're not as close as we are. So how in the world do you expect us to accept them and how could God ever accept them and how could they ever get in to God's kingdom? Now, I don't know about y'all, but I think this is very relevant for us even outside of the Jewish context because any church attending Christian Any church attending Christian is always facing the temptation to shift our faith out of Jesus into religion. The Jews that did this, and they didn't do this intentionally, it just happened over time. And here's what happened. The temptation was to shift faith from who to what? The Jews, their original covenant was between God and them, but over time it became between them and religion, them and the temple, them and the law, them and the things that God gave them. It was not about who they knew. It was about what they had and what they knew. It was impersonal. And we'll talk about what happens when we deal in the impersonal in a minute. But here's why this is so important. Who we know, who we know holds us accountable. Because it's a personal relationship that we're dealing with. Who we know holds us accountable, but what we know often only holds others accountable. You see, when we're dealing with something that's personal, something that's internal, we are more aware of what we have done or what we have not done, and we're less worried about what other people aren't doing or what other people need to do. But when it's about what we know, it becomes something that we leverage against other people and we're less worried about what we've done and more worried about what someone else hasn't or has done. Does that make sense? If we're focused on our faith in Jesus and what Jesus expects from us, we have little time to worry about everything else and everyone else is doing, what everyone else is doing. And we are most aware of the alt to within us. When, when your faith, when your relationship with God or when your faith is about a relationship with God, then all of a sudden it's about how you and God are cooperating and how you are following him and how you are responding to him. All of a sudden it's about you and him and not about everyone else. And we are most aware of our alt to, and here's the beauty of Christianity, Christ takes the alt to and makes it an able to. Christ says, okay, I know why you make excuses because sin is, is, is causing you to you know, look for an exit ramp or causing you to think, well, I don't have to do this or I can't do this and I'm not able to do this. Jesus says, you, that all too that's in you, that all too that is part of your nature, I'm going to make it an able to. I'm going to give you the ability 
to do it and take the excuse away from it. But when we focus on what we know and that becomes our point of boast, we are more tempted to point the finger rather than self-reflect. And it makes sense when our relationship or when our faith is something external, we live out our faith in an external way, superficial way, pointing the finger away. But when our faith is dealing with something in someone internal and personal, then we are the first object of concern. Now that might be a mouthful, but that's my best summary of what's going on in Romans 2. Paul is trying to get us on level ground because it's there that we can come to terms with the sin that we are all struck with and the Savior who can change us all. That's really the case he's been building since chapter 1. And and just to recap uh, about what we've covered so far, back in chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God to salvation, Paul defines salvation in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Salvation is personal and powerful. We need to be saved because we have sin and we are unrighteous and we are ungodly. But Jesus Christ gives us his righteousness by faith in him. We are righteous through him and that is a personal and a powerful transaction that you need to be saved because you are a sinner who knows what you should do but can't do what you ought to do and you make excuses but salvation takes the excuse away and takes the inability away and empowers you to change and gives you freedom from sin Ultimately, we will be judged whether or not we are righteous or unrighteous. And if we are righteous, we will live according to Jesus' way. If we are are unrighteous, we will remain in sin and do what the rest of chapter 1 talks about. And then in chapter 2, specifically verses 6 through 11, Paul makes a distinction between those that are righteous and those that are unrighteous. And I think to summarize it, we could say that who we live for will impact how we live. Who we live for impacts how we live. Now, if we are living for a what and not a who, what will make us look at others? But who makes us look at ourselves and look internally? God is impartial and everybody is required to come the same way. We all need Jesus to turn our ought to to enable to. And Jesus can even do better than that. He can make that able to a want to. Do you see that? That if you are righteous... It's because Jesus has given you his righteousness. And let me just, you know, go on a limb here. When God gives you something that is from him, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? See, people talk about their own righteousness. My righteousness, the scripture says it's filthy rags. My righteousness does good some days and does bad a lot of other days. My righteousness is fickle and unsustainable. But when God literally gives us his own righteousness, he's saying to you that all to in you, I'm going to make it an able to, and even better, I'm going to make it a want to because you have from me the gift of salvation. So in the next section, we read it in our opening, Paul talks about the transformation that occurs for even those who've never heard the law. Now, listen clearly. 
He's not saying that the law isn't important. He's not saying the Old Testament isn't important because he spends the rest of Romans referencing the Old Testament extensively. In chapter 4, he talks about Abraham. Chapter 5, he goes back to talk about Adam. I mean, for the rest of Romans, he is deeply rooting his thesis in the Old Testament. So when he says that they didn't need the law to do the things the law required, he's not saying we shouldn't teach the Bible. He's just saying we have a help from God that we could not get just by reading a text. We have something that comes from the living power of God within us. So Paul says there's a transformation that takes place. Even in those who do not have the law, they receive this transformation power. Not because they read something, but because they receive something. Does that make sense? So that's Paul's way of saying checkmate to those who boasted their knowledge and religion made them superior. He says to the Jews, you had this knowledge and it didn't do anything for you. Because you used it to judge others and not change yourself. But thanks God, thanks be to God that he didn't just give the Gentiles the same law that didn't help you. He gave them something better and he offers you the same something better. So when Paul says in verse 13, the hearers, not the hearers of the law are justified, but the doers. He's not saying that salvation is by works. He's saying that salvation works. You hear that? I should have put that on the screen, but I, I, I want to say it emphatically. Paul is not preaching a doctrine of salvation by works. He's preaching a doctrine of salvation that works. Because if God has given you something that belonged to him, it's going to work, isn't it? I mean, what did James say? Don't be just a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. How can you be a doer of the word? It's because you've received something from Jesus. And if you've received it from Jesus, you're not just going to be a hearer of the law, you're going to be a doer of what God has required. Part of salvation, really all of salvation, is understanding that God's spirit within us moves us towards something better. Again, that we are conformed to the image of Christ. And in the Bible's version of salvation, which is the only version of salvation, the Bible's version of salvation might be different than the version that you heard in church all your life. And this is where I think a lot of religious people are exposed to not knowing what salvation is all about. Salvation is not about what you believe, but who you believe in. I'm not saying that there aren't things that you believe. I believe a lot, but that doesn't save me. Salvation is not about what you believe, but it's about who you believe in, because there is no transaction when I'm just holding something. But you bet there's a transaction when I'm being held by somebody. Salvation is not about what you believe, but who you believe in. It's not about how much truth you know, but about who you trust in. Believe in, believe in and trust in is a, is a Greek phrase that means surrender and put all your weight on. It's a transfer of trust. It's a total work of God because when you put your faith in him from the ground up like a tree with, it, with its roots in the ground, something begins to enter into you, someone begins to enter into you, and you are changed in a supernatural way. Yes, knowledge helps you understand what God wants to do, but knowledge is not what changes you. Salvation and power from Jesus is what changes you. That's why James says in James chapter 2, that someone who says they're saved by 
uh, I have faith. James says, I'll show you my works because without works, faith is dead. We're familiar with that in James chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 16, uh, or verse 14 through the end of that chapter. Uh, James says, you believe in God, the demons even believe. But he says in chapter 2, verse 20, O foolish man, faith without works is dead. James is not saying that salvation is by works. He is saying that salvation works. When grace gets to you, grace gets to work through you. And again, James says, what good is faith that doesn't work? And and come on, if faith doesn't refocus us, if it doesn't replenish and refine us, then what does it do? What good is that faith? Because James is saying, do you not understand that when you put your faith in my brother, Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, it's not just a flimsy ideology, it's a relationship that gives you power from God? Faith is not just uh, an outward state of uh, inward belief or inward state of mind, but it's an outward state of being. We move by faith, we live and we walk by faith. If a Christian isn't doing Christ-like things, then Christianity is just a sticker, it's not an identity, and that's the big difference between a religion and a relationship. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself, see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not realize this is about yourselves, that Jesus is in you? Unless indeed he's not in you. So Paul's litmus test is pretty black and white, isn't it? Look in the mirror and, you know, James gives us, gives us that example of Abraham where Abraham was justified by his faith and God gave him righteousness. And we've already touched on this, but I want to make it clear. Our good does not make us righteous, but it's Christ's righteousness that causes us to do good. So here's the thing. You should not feel like you have fallen short if you don't do good because your good is not what gets you saved. But if you profess to know Jesus and his righteousness has been transferred to you and yet you're still ignoring the good he wants to do through you, well, that's an issue and that's something that God will not let you have peace if you ignore. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 13 once again, it's not the hearers of the law that are just but the doers of the law. I want you to look at verse 14 through 15 though and we'll close. Listen to this thing, this distinction that he makes about the Gentiles because the Jews did not believe the Gentiles could get saved because they first had to hear about Moses and all the Old Testament. And Paul said, no, 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 let me explain. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of law is written in their hearts. So what is he saying there? That when the Gentiles put their faith in Jesus something's happening in their hearts and they're not as smart as the Jews, but they are living better than them in this context because they are not justifying themselves by what they know. They are justified by who they know and because they know Jesus, they are living through Jesus. I want to put some verses up here. I want you to read whenever you have the chance. I'll summarize them real quickly for you. In chapter 8 of Acts, when the Samaritans first put their faith in Jesus, the council, the leaders of the church say there's no way. There's no way those 
And you know how the Jews felt about Samaritans. We talked about that Sunday night in our small groups. There's no way those rascal Samaritans are, say, are, are, are following Jesus. There's no way. They don't believe like we believe. They worship on a mountain. They don't know Moses. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know the Old Testament. There's no way they are saved. So Peter and John are sent to Samaria to check up on what Philip was doing. And they are amazed at what they see. Okay, then in chapter 10, that's the story of Cornelius. Peter goes to Cornelius' house at Caesarea by the sea in, in uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And remember, Peter didn't want to go. God said, go, don't call, clean what I've called clean. don't call unclean what I've called clean. Peter goes, and then Peter goes back to the council and because the, they don't believe that this Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, how in the world could a Roman soldier, those people killed Jesus, how could they, one of them, be saved? And Peter says, I'll tell you what, I don't really know how it happened myself, but all I know is that God showed up, and who am I to stand in God's way? And then they have the first big church conference in Acts 15. The Pharisees, some of the Pharisees that became Christians, are talking bad about Paul and, and, and Barnabas, who are on the mission field, preaching Jesus to Gentiles, and they're not preaching Moses, and they're not preaching David, they're preaching Jesus and they come to this council in Acts 15, and they give their defense, and then Paul gives his defense, and then Peter stands up and says, y'all remember how God sent me to, to Cornelius' house? Remember how I didn't want to do that? And Peter still hung up on that because he really didn't want to go. But he says, hey, by my mouth, God preached to the Gentiles, and God gave them his grace just as he gave us his grace. We are not saved by what we know. We are saved by who we know. And who we know gave us the spirit of God and gave us the grace of God. And that's why we are saved. And that's why we're different. The same Holy Spirit that entered them has entered, that entered us, has entered them. So Paul punctuates all of this by, in Romans 2, 14, 15, by emphasizing the work that God is doing in the hearts of those who knew nothing compared to what the Jews knew. Now, is this saying they shouldn't go back and read the Old Testament? By no means, they should. Of course, every Christian should read the Bible. It's God's word. But that is not what saves us, and that's not what changes us. What changes us is the Holy Spirit of God bringing Jesus into our heart. And yes, the Word of God helps clarify and direct us and, 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 and instruct us. But without the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts, there's no hope for us. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says this, work out your salvation. Now, people get nervous about that. That's not saying that you've got to work to be saved. Work out means exercise. As in God has given you his power you are able to do great things, but if you don't get up and do great things or aspire to do great things, you won't ever do great things because, as we all know, there's muscles that we have. Unless you exercise them, they don't amount to anything. So Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know what that word trembling means? Have you ever tried to lift weight? Have you ever exercised before? And the first time you exercise, you, you get really exhausted and your muscles begin to have spasms and get really weak and you feel like you can't ever do that again. But the more you do it, the stronger you get and the more able you are to do it. Work out your salvation because it's God that works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. 
Verse 16, Paul told us, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel, we will be judged based on whether or not we knew Jesus. Whether or not we know Jesus will be obvious when we get to heaven. Because if we know Jesus, if we knew Jesus, we will be, have lived like Jesus. We will have lived through Jesus. Because, of those who follow, because those who follow or know Jesus will follow Jesus, and those who follow Jesus will be marked by a progressive work of sanctification. Progressive means ongoing. It gets greater and greater as it goes. Sanctification means you're becoming sanctified. You're becoming holy. So as a follower of Jesus, the ought to becomes an able to, becomes a want to. If you're stuck at the ought to and you're still making excuses, then Jesus is looking at you saying, my power is not just in you for you to make excuses about stuff. My power is in you to give you an able to, and my power is in you to give you a want to. Everybody here has the ought to. That's given to you at birth. That's part of your conscience. Jesus gives you the able to, and following Jesus gives you the want to. Jump down to verse 25 and listen to how Paul puts one final nail in the coffin of the Jewish religion, of any religion, and critiques them putting their faith in the wrong place and how it is not indicative of a relationship, which is what it's all about. Now, he references circumcision, which is the Jewish outward sign of salvation, which was not an inward work. It was an outward work, which again is what this has been about. For the circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision, as in just because you look like you are a follower of God, it doesn't mean you are a follower of God. You can have the appearance all you want, but if the ought to is not becoming a want to, something's missing. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, will his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Paul's saying to the people, to the, to the Jews, Gentiles are more godly than you, even though they don't look like they should be in the family. They are in the family because God's doing a work in them. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and your circumcision are transgressing the law? You see what Paul is critical of? Religion that looks like it's right but isn't. It points the fingers at those who are wrong but is no better itself. Meanwhile, the Gentiles have not the outward appearance, but they have the inward gift, and that's what matters. For he is not a Jew, verse 28 is so big, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, and that means a child of God in this context. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Does all that make sense? It's about what God is doing in here. And Paul's indictment to the Jews was, he's doing it in the heart of the Gentiles, and they don't know a quarter of what you know. But for some reason, they're making laps around you for the kingdom. So, I mean, what good? What good is a set of beliefs if they don't set us apart? What good is the living word if it's not alive in us? What good is knowing about salvation if we are not living in that power of salvation? Paul is saying, don't tell me you're saved because of what you know. Show me you're saved by who you know, Jesus. If you know Jesus, it will be clear. 
Remember at the end of John's gospel, when Jesus is testing Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep and, 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 and feed my lambs. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus is trying to get Peter to start over because Peter left and he came back and he's dealing with all that guilt and all that you know, regret. And, and Jesus says, okay, Peter, let's just start over. Just follow me. Get back to where you were when you first put your faith in me and how that faith began to change you. And, and that funny thing in the heart of Peter that's in the heart of you and me, immediately when Jesus says, I want you to start following me again, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That thing in Peter, he knew he ought to, but he began to wonder what somebody else was doing with their ought to. He turned and saw John, and he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? I mean, Jesus says, Peter, you ought to, and you are able to because of who, I, who I've made you and what I've done for you. And Peter's immediate response is deflect and defer. What about this man? And if this is what happens with us, church, we need to expose this with light and repent of this and quit doing this. When Peter heard Jesus say, you follow me, Peter says, what about that guy? And Jesus says, what is, what is it to you if he never dies? What is it to you if me and John, if I have different plans for John? It doesn't matter what my plans are for John. You follow me. I think that's a pretty good place to close, isn't it? Jesus says, Peter, that ought to in you is not so that you can point the finger at others. Is it so you can realize what you need and realize that I've given you what you need? Follow me. Let me turn that ought to into an able to, and let me turn that able to into a want to, because that's what salvation is all about. And if you doubt it, just ask God to make that power more realized and more known in you. If you put your faith in Jesus, but you're struggling with the ought to to become an able to, become a want to, Jesus is saying, hey, it's not because my power isn't there. Let's see what we can do. And if you put your faith in Jesus, if you put your trust in him, he will make a difference in you. Just ask Peter. Just ask the whole, council, whole group of disciples. It wasn't because of what they knew, but who they knew. That's what salvation is all about. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for being so opposed and so against religion and the trap and the smokescreen of religion that did not help the Jews and does not help anybody. Thank you for exposing this nature to deflect and defer. And God, would you please, would you please pour your spirit out on us and would you make that change in our hearts like you've changed the, the Gentiles who didn't know what anyone else knew that were closer to you, but begin to exhibit and display the works of God in amazing ways. Lord, would you take that alt to and would you, would you forgive us and would you deliver us from pointing the finger and make this an inward relationship that goes from alt to to able to to want to? Lord, give us that want to. Give us that desire. Make your righteousness on fire within us that we might live for you 
all the days of our life. We know that you are willing. And tonight, Lord, we respond with that same desire. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.